have teamed up with 500 Startups' CVC Insider Series, where top CVC practitioners offer advice and best practices regarding common challenges encountered within corporate venturing. Featured this week is an interview with Linda Yates of Mark49 and Nicolas Savage of TDK Ventures. Thank you, 500 Startups, for making this happen. I think this is really useful and helpful for many people who are in corporate venturing or thinking about going into corporate venturing. Today, it's really a great honor to have Linda Yates, who is a CEO and co-founder of uh, uh, Mac49. For disclosure, Mac49 has been instrumental to uh, setting up TDK Ventures as a corporate VC arm of TDK and making sure that we follow best practices, we understand the ecosystem, and we really understand the job and don't uh, make the mistakes that are so easy to make when you're just starting. So, Linda, I would like to give you five to 10 minutes to introduce yourself, Mike49, and also your journey. And I will be taking questions afterwards after your introduction. So if someone in the audience have questions, they can add them to the Q&A, and not the chat, but the Q&A uh, box. Linda, all yours. Terrific. Thank you, Nicola. Thank you, Sean, and 500 Startups for the opportunity to, to say hello. Nicola wanted me to start with my journey, so I'll share with you kind of who I am and, and why we exist, and I'll talk a little bit about, about uh, Mach 49. So as they said, I'm the co-founder and CEO of uh, Mach 49. I actually am a native Californian, uh, rare in California these days, but what makes what's interesting about that actually is that I grew up in the Silicon Valley with all the people who founded the venture capital industry. So I've been frankly deeply rooted and connected in that world my entire existence. But most of my uh, professional career has been in the boardrooms and C-suites of the Global 500. So I started in investment banking, corporate finance and M&A with Smith Barney. From there, I went back to graduate school at Stanford. And out of Stanford, I joined uh, one of the large consulting firms at the time called the Mac Group, which was an amazing place. I ended up becoming the head of the San Francisco office and co-leading the high tech and telecommunications practice. Uh, and I moved to Amsterdam to do that. So although I'm a local, I've lived, worked or traveled in about 70 countries. So I'm pretty global in my perspective and have lots to share about doing, doing the work that Nicola is talking about uh, around the world. Uh, from the Mac group, I was actually recruited by two faculty uh, members, a guy, uh, a person named Gary Hamill, who was at London Business School, and Professor C.K. Prahalad, who was at the University of Michigan. And for any of you who are students of corporate innovation or who want to be students of corporate innovation, uh, you will remember that they are the two professors who pioneered the field of corporate innovation with the publication of their book, Competing for the Future, back in 1994. Uh, that book was one of those game-changing, change-the-world books in the, in the business world. And they decided that they wanted to found a company that was focused exclusively on corporate innovation. And uh, not strategy, not, not marketing, not operations improvement, but focusing on corporate innovation. They knew they needed somebody who was bilingual between uh, the Silicon Valley, the startups and the venture capitalists, and the uh, boardrooms and C-suites of the Global 500, and so they also needed somebody who knew how to start a company. So they recruited me to become the founding CEO of a company we called Stratagos. Stratagos was very, very successful. Uh, they, we were more focused kind of on innovation intervention, if you will, it was still more kind of consulting like, 
but we pioneered things like uh, creating uh, new venture plans, uh, doing a new venture fair is what we called it in, the, in those days. This is way before uh, TechCrunch disrupt any of these uh, things existed. By 1996, Clay Christensen, who was just an amazing human being, had written Innovator's Dilemma off the back of that book. And by 1997, we had written an article that's still one of the most reprinted articles at Harvard Press called Bringing the Silicon Valley Inside. Nobody talked about that in those days. So that's just to say I've been doing this a long time. Uh, I sat on that board. Uh, I mean, I basically ran that company for about five years. At that point, I, we, I had, uh, my husband and I had three kids in uh, basically three years and two weeks. So every 18 months, it was very fast. We were, it was all about the productivity, but I had been traveling for 60 to 80% of my time for 18 years. And that was not the most functional lifestyle. This is in 2000. And I also realized uh, that at that moment, I was being recruited by a lot of public company boards. There was a lot of turnover happening uh, in the boards in those days. And so I decided to step down as the CEO of Strategos. And I ended up joining the board of directors of Sybase. Uh, and I sat on that board for 10 years until it was sold to SAP, which you will remember was a New York Stock Exchange traded uh, very strong high technology company. I then also was uh, nominated and selected for a Henry Crown Fellowship at the Aspen Institute, which is a big think tank in the United States. And ultimately, I went on to basically rekindle my roots in Silicon Valley, investing in private companies, sitting on boards and bridging between the startups and uh, the large companies in the global uh, 500, the VCs as well, until about I'd, about seven years ago now. And seven years ago is when Mach 49 was born. Uh, if you look at the history of the Silicon Valley, 50 years ago when it was founded, 55 years ago, about now when it was founded, all of the VCs were actually investing in what we call the dreamers, people who were, going, who were creating whole new industries. But starting about a decade ago, the VC started investing in all the disruptors, those companies that were basically going after all of the existing industries and all of the large global 1000 companies. So we were seeing a lot of people kind of come into the Silicon Valley looking for what hit them or looking for that innovation fairy dust to be sprinkled upon them. I'm not a big believer in fairy dust, but I 100% believe uh, in the ability of large companies because of our success at Stratagos for large companies to basically disrupt themselves from the inside out, to create, build and launch new ventures generated from within to drive meaningful growth and to disrupt themselves from the outside in investing and partnering with startups in a very strategic way. So founded uh, Mach 49 to in essence become the Y Combinator, if you will, for the Global 1000. And that's kind of where we are today. A uh, couple of other interesting notes about me, and I'll talk a little bit more about Mach 49. I am, uh, we are complete eco geeks. So I, I was blessed to be able to create uh, and build the greenest house in America that we've been sharing all of the results of with lots of people around the world. Uh, I am a big believer in 21st century education. So in the middle of all that, I founded a school as well. And I'm about to, and I've just kind of finished up the final edits on a book that Harvard Press will be publishing on the methodology that we use. Uh, the first book is Disrupting Inside Out, How Companies Can Launch New Ventures at Startup Speed to Drive Growth, which will be published in March of 2021. And as I just said to Nicola, we will be um, doing the second book, which is around disrupting outside in, probably about 12 months after that, of which we will be featuring lots of, of, of uh, case studies 
such as what TDK Ventures has done. So I will just hit one quick thing on Mach 49. You know, as I said, we focus on kind of two big areas is disrupting inside out and, um, and then disrupting outside in. What that means is we basically do four things. We help large companies launch ventures, build incubators to work ourselves out of a job, uh, and do that on a, on a perpetual basis to build a pipeline and portfolio of new ventures. The third is, is that we help them do as we have with, with Nicola, with TDK Ventures, with JetBlue Ventures, with uh, Pernod Ricard's Conviviality Ventures and others, Goodyear, Hypertherm, help them basically do corporate venturing, build world-class uh, CVC funds, or in some cases like with Shell, we uh, help their investment committee uh, in, the, in one of their divisions think like and act like uh, top tier venture capitalists and bring a portfolio uh, uh, mindset to the investments that they're making. And in some cases with clients, they actually don't have a CVC. They, they kind of get put their dip their toe in the water by doing partnerships with external startups. And there's good ways to do that and not so good ways to do that. And then the last thing is helping people kind of bring the Silicon Valley inside. And what we mean by that is I'm not a big believer in innovation transformation. But what I do believe is that if you basically take the mothership, that oil tanker, and you tether enough speedboats in the form of new ventures, whether invested in from the outside or invested in from the inside, and those new ventures are now 100 million, 300 million, you know, 400 million dollars, that's, you know, one, two, three billion dollars in market cap, the mothership will, will turn. It, they will start to ask you what the from to shifts are that they need to basically make to ensure that these new ventures uh, can reach escape velocity. So uh, we are 100% focused on execution. We are uh, a, an interesting cadre of successful serial entrepreneurs, top-tier VCs, and C-suite executives. We say you have to have no hair or gray hair to work with us because we've done what we're teaching. And in our, our operating careers, we've created about $50 billion in um, market value in companies that we've invested in, we've uh, created, managed, or built. And then the last thing I'll say, which gets, which is related to the book that I just talked about, is that from the beginning, our whole goal was to develop a teachable, repeatable, scalable method around both the corporate investing and in the venture building. And so we've invested, you know, we were very stealth and invested tons of time to be able to share uh, methodology, process tools, templates with people around the world. So happy to be here and happy to answer any questions or, or go wherever you'd like to go. Thank you, Linda. Uh, it was great. And uh, thank you for sharing your personal journey. I think that's really helpful for the audience to get to know you. I had the chance to know you for the last two years, but not everyone had that chance. So thank you. Um, I guess this is the first time I hear your analogy about speedboat, and I really like it. Um, can you push that analogy a bit more about why would big companies not think about having these speedboats? Yeah. So one of the challenges, so I, I use that analogy because, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we want to do innovation transformation. And that means, you know, a lot of money, a lot of workshops, a lot of people from the outside telling people on the inside what to do. And our our, our thing when we talk about kind of what can you learn from Silicon Valley, what you can what you can bring inside is that we believe that there's basically three things you can really understand about Silicon Valley that you can, that you can do. Number one is that we understand customer pain, right? Um, no one in the world knew they wanted a microwave oven, a minivan, or a DVR. 
but they knew that that they weren't getting home in time to cook their favorite meal. They couldn't watch their shows and they had to cart an ever increasing number of kids, dogs and sporting equipment to myriad places. Uh, And so they could tell you their pain, but then it's up to you to basically take that pain and marry it with the art of the possible. What are the current trends and technology that are available? And then the third thing that we do in Silicon Valley is we place a series of small bets. We do pilots, we do experiments. And the reason why is because we, the way we look at funding in Silicon Valley is funding is like an onion. Every layer of onion is a layer of risk. Could be market risk, technical risk, financial risk, or in the case of a large company, governance risk, you love it to death or you starve it of oxygen, right? So when we, the, so the, the best companies and the best, you know, kind of internal entrepreneurs, external entrepreneurs are the ones who know how to remove the greatest amount of risk on the least amount of capital, okay? And when you build a business and execution plan, it should be built around what are the small bets you're going to place uh, and what are, the, what are the risks you're trying to mitigate with those small bets or experiments or pilots? What are the metrics and milestones that you are going to tell you that you can mitigate those, those, those um, risks? And only then do you get to unlock subsequent rounds of funding. When you send out speedboats, those speedboats are all about managing risk. It's all about removing the greatest amount of risk on the least amount of capital. So you're not trying to basically turn the whole mothership. You're basically doing sending out these speedboats, whether they're they're, uh, uh, ventures that you've invested in through your CVC or there are ventures that you've built from the inside you send those out that allows the, the, the mothership to get comfortable with the fact that actually you can do innovation transformation. You actually can turn the, 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 the oil tanker, but you're doing it in a way that is, is less risky uh, for the mothership. And by the time you do that, what's going to happen is then the senior executives, when they look at that and they say, wait a minute, you're creating a unicorn here or you're investing in a unicorn here. Wait, remind me again what those from two shifts are that we might need to make to help these ventures reach escape velocity, whether it's policies or politics or procurement, uh, you know, it's legal. Who's the person who's going to write the one page term sheet, not the 40 page term sheet in your legal department. So that's really why we use that analogy, which is don't basically go in and try to do innovation transformation or turn the mothership. You know what? Send out the speedboats, have proof of concept, have things that are in the market with product market fit generating revenue. Now you have that that bully pulpit. Now you have that foundation to stand on. And and I think on top of what you're saying, I like the um, intuitive reference to being faster, more nimble, and cheaper to do these experiments. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the the one of the things. In fact, the closing paragraphs of my book are there are two altruistic reasons I founded Mach Forty Nine. Number one is that people are living longer and longer because of healthcare and technology. Uh, and most of those people are actually, as much as we love startups, employed by large companies. Uh, but I believe most large, and, and so by doing venture building and venture investing, you, uh, you basically help turn these motherships into a portfolio of companies. When you're a portfolio of companies, by design, you are basically closer to the customer, you're more agile, you're more nimble, you can kill things faster, right? But you can also accelerate things faster. And so it's really important, I think, for people to think of themselves more like Berkshire Hathaway, uh, more like, you know, TDK Ventures is becoming the growth engine for TDK because it's going to basically keep the mothership current on the art of the possible. Also, if you do have an incubator 
a top tier CVC, one option for your incubator if you're doing venture building is to build. The other three options are to buy, partner, invest. So a world-class CVC, when married with your an internal incubator doing venture building, will actually uh, be able to tell the, the help uh, accelerate those ventures, even the ones inside, because they'll know where in Silicon Valley or Tel Aviv or Mumbai or Singapore or London, a, a great uh, startup might exist for you to work with. Very, very nice. Um, I'm going to have two questions, which is about the past, and then we will go on to the current and best practices and all of that. One is from the audience, and I want to remind the audience, if you want to have a question asked, you use a Q&A, not the chat. So the question is from the past. So you mentioned dreamers and disruptors. Who are the current founders? And maybe you can add a bit more of uh, what was so important about it. About dreamers versus disruptors? Actually, so Paul Holland, um, I'm going to share one slide with you guys because I think you'll appreciate this. But Paul Holland, who runs our Disrupting Outside In practice that Nicola's worked with a lot, he 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 wrote this article, uh, and we can share it with all of your audience, on um, dreamers and disruptors for Huffington Post. And the whole point was uh, uh, that really, if you think about it, 50 years ago, people didn't really worry about, about uh, the S Silicon Valley because they were literally um, investing in all these dreamers, all these, all these new companies, right? They were investing in you know, semiconductors and, and microprocessors and smartphones, et cetera. But today, right, they're going after every single inter, uh, uh, industry. And we, our fundamental belief is, look, there's literally no reason that any of these guys couldn't have done it. Uh, there's no, you, you know, every large company that people like to say is a dinosaur uh, can go, they can beat the startups at their own game. They can easily eat the unicorns. You have ideas, you have talent, you have brand, you have resources, you have capital, you have technology, you have customers. I had dinner with the CEO, the brand new CEO, Peugeot, and he came to me and he said, Linda, I want to prove to Silicon Valley that we are engaged, we are here, you know, you are, you grew up inside the wall garden, you can help me navigate tell me how much money do I have to put in a venture fund? Is it 50 million? Is it 100 million? Is it 150 million? I said, it's this much. He said, what, no money? I said, listen, Silicon Valley doesn't need your money. How many customers do you have? He said 30 million. These are the things that, that the best CVCs understand is that, and this is exactly what TDK Ventures is doing and what a number of great CVC groups are doing is they realize you have to have that ecosystem. You have to bring all these talent ideas and brand to the table. But what we say to people is, listen, you know, there's no reason Marriott could not have created Airbnb. Uh, Blockbuster had three chances to buy Netflix. There's no law of physics that says Uber could not have come out of Toyota. There's, and, you know, the financial services guys are wringing their hands saying, you know, Jamie Dimon at, at JP Morgan wrote a letter to his shareholders two years in a row saying that what keeps him up at night is that the Silicon Valley is coming and they all want to eat my lunch. There's no reason these guys, any of them, couldn't have created Stripe, which today is a $32 billion valuation. And so, you know, that's the issue about dreamers and disruptors, which is there's no reason that large companies cannot disrupt themselves either from the inside out or the outside in. You have way more on your uh, to, to bring to the table than any 25-year-old startup. You'd also have inertia, antibodies, and orthodoxies that have to be overcome. I think that's that's a really great message for those who are listening, who are thinking about corporate venturing. It really is meaningful, and it can really change 
what can happen to the mothership and how innovation can happen. Um, I have a question about what's, uh, what's behind the name of Mac 49, and I know it's going to touch on, on something <laughs> very important to that. So, Yeah, I should have finished the story when I was talking about helping, when I was talking about the speedboats and helping companies reach escape velocity. Exactly. Uh, uh, Mach 37 is actually escape velocity. That name was taken. So I needed a number bigger than 37 for uh, my wonky physics friends in the Silicon Valley. So we picked the number 49 because companies were coming to Silicon Valley, um, especially uh, we have an incubator hub here and literally like Standard Bank out of South Africa and, you know, Schneider Electric, people were, are sending their venture teams to us to basically incubate. We now have offices in Singapore and Boston and London and all over the world now. But and now we're actually doing everything, all the venture building and, and venture investing uh, uh, virtually, obviously, like this. Uh, but yes, that's that's where the name comes from. It's all about helping these ventures, whether they're they're you're investing in them from the outside or you're investing in them from the inside, uh, helping them reach escape velocity. Very nice. And then we, we will uh, go a bit deeper on the double click uh, for the speedboat and velocity. A question from Kumi about talent risk inside a large corporate. What are the thoughts about reducing talent risk so that those speedboats have the right pilots? Yeah, so talent risk, so, so there's a couple of things. So when we, when we work with clients, we kind of have five preconditions for success or we won't work with them. <laughs> and the first two are you have to have a full-time team. Uh, and on that team, you have to have a CEO candidate or a business owner candidate. Um, it's the same thing, by the way, when we work with CVCs. Uh, the interesting thing about when we work with CVCs, though, is that we say you need someone who knows the mothership, not somebody who knows venture capital. Uh, because because of my point about you have to be able to bring the capability of the mothership to benefit your ventures and and TDK you can you know you can tell Nikolai you can tell lots of great stories you, know, you can tell um, like uh, Starship you can talk about lots of ways that you guys have brought the capability of TDK ventures to benefit your startups but but the issue with the with talent is there's so there's two two sides to that coin so number one is there's a there's a ton of internal entrepreneurs inside every large company and and the way to basically recruit and retain those stars is to basically give them an opportunity to build ventures and yeah. to, to work on a portfolio that's why i believe most large companies should become berkshire hathaway because it's it's more, it's a better uh, opportunity for people uh, so, so in terms of talent risk, you've got talent risk inside, which is you're going to lose people who are talented because capital is global. Uh, they're going to go and get, and they're going to have, you know, TDK ventures or hypertherm invest in them outside. So th it's one way to actually avoid, uh, uh, losing talent. If you build an incubator or you build CVCs, the flip side on talent risk is okay, but you may not have all the people that you need. When we tell clients, that you have to have that full-time team and a, and a CEO candidate, we tell that CEO candidate, you may not be the CEO of the venture in the end, because if you're a bunch of investment bankers and you build a digital platform and you don't have any experience or your venture is about building a really cool digital platform to offer a service, we're going to have to go outside to get that talent risk. When we, um, when we go outside and even when we're inside, we truly believe in the Silicon Valley model of sharing in the upside. So, you know, there are performance metrics that are attached both to the CVCs and they may not be a traditional model uh, in many of the CVCs case, but there are performance metrics built in. Same thing on the venture building. 
we, we put in the concept of phantom shares uh, to make sure that we can, um, we can recruit people from the outside if we don't have enough of the talent we need to basically ensure that the pilots are going to be successful. And one of the things that we do, we have you know, brought people to Silicon Valley and introduced them to some of the top startups in the world. And what a lot of our large company, like our mothership executives say, okay, you've now taught me, you've set the bar for how high the talent needs to be for both our internal people and external people, but you've got to be able to attract and retain that talent. And there's multiple mechanisms to do that. I really like the way you describe it because not doing something potentially means you're going to lose your best talent. So yeah, it's not sure. about just the talent risk of doing it, but actually not doing it. Uh, I want to double click on something which is very tactical, but would be very useful for people to know about it is a phantom shares because most people don't know. And I think that's actually a really important element of rewarding people taking some level of risk and having a level of upsides. Yeah. So I think there's kind of like four levels of people that need to be compensated when you're doing venture building or venture investing uh, from a mothership standpoint, right? So um, for instance, so when, when we take a venture, if we're, let's say we're disrupting inside out and we're, we're building a venture. If you're building a venture on the outside, it's easy. You just set up a cap table. It's just a normal thing. You just set it up in the same way. Yeah. What you were trying to do with the phantom shares is mimic that cap table but on the inside. And so even though it's, so it's not real shares in the sense of that if you launch a venture inside TDK, you're getting TDK shares, you're getting shares of, and I'll, I'll use a real example. So Schneider Electric has a very hot venture that we launched for them called Clipsol Solar, uh, which is in the residential solar home, kind of residential kind of energy as a service in, in Australia. And so the, the, so there's still a, a cap table, but it's a cap table of phantom shares. And those phantom shares are tied to metrics and milestones that are there. And then that comes in the form of a cash bonus as opposed to a real, you know, you, you don't have a, a, an IPO. But the nice thing about it is that those, that those phantom shares can be evergreened, right? So as opposed to an IPO where you basically, if you sell your shares, that's it, you don't have your shares, or the stock price is determined externally, you have control over the success of your um, your, you have control over what you earn based on your performance. So it's very tied to performance in that way, but it's still, hey, if you're the CEO and you still have X percentage, you put a pool aside. Now, it may not be quite as big a pool as you might find with an external venture because you're not taking as much risk. You're getting all your money from, from the mothership. You're not having to go hat in hand to the venture capitalists every three months to go get another round of funding. So there's a lot of really, there, you know, there's a lot of benefits to launching and you have hopefully 30 million customers that you get to go to and run your pilots with. So there's, a, there's less risk. So there may be less upside. The other thing that's really cool about um, another opportunity you have to reward people. And we've done this, we did this with one of the companies, which is, you know, a lot of times venture building is uh, it, it, it go, people talk about 25-year-old CEOs, right? And a lot of times there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are in their 40s, their 50s, their 60s, right? They're very, very strong, super talented, super experienced, but they can't take the risk that a 25-year-old with no family and no debt might, not, and you know, no college tuition to pay. The beauty of doing what we're doing is we allow people who are entrepreneurial, either in the form of the CVC or in the form of building an incubator or venture building, they can actually look and toggle their risk so we had one company where the young guy in the company who had no family, 
he basically took nothing in terms of the traditional base and bonus and toggled way up on the equity. But we had another person in their mid fifties who had kids in, in school who couldn't afford the risk. And he just continued on with his base plus bonus. So he wasn't going to get the upside, but he also, you know, he was protected on the downside to a certain extent. Um, whereas the other guy was going to make more than everybody else, but he was great because he helped us manage the cash burn because he took very little um, uh, comp, uh, salary and, and traditional salary and, and bonus. So that's one set of people you compensate. The CVCs are kind of, there's a range of ways that you're compensating the CVCs. They too, though, obviously you, you want them to share in the upside and there's multiple models for that. And then even with an incubator team, if the incubator team is pumping out multiple ventures, then we typically give them a, you know, a percentage or two of the, each of the ventures in terms of phantom shares because they have become the Mach 49 inside and they're helping to launch these things. Which makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, no, I really like everything you've said. So I promised a, a question for the past. So yeah. the question is, when you think about corporate venturing 10 years ago and today, what are the more drastic differences between the two? Okay, so I think the CVCs are getting way, way, way smarter. Um, because the motherships are getting smarter, number one, and the CVCs are getting tighter in terms of the way they're operating in a far more professional way. So I think there's probably three main differences. Number one, in the old days, um, the CVCs would basically just try to hire somebody out of the Silicon Valley. And, you know, usually it wasn't somebody who made it at one of the top tier VCs. And so it was kind of the worst of all worlds. You weren't an insider at the mothership and nor were you a top tier VC because obviously they weren't going to the, to that. Yep. So that was, I think one of the, that's one of the big differences is that now what people are realizing is, listen, you know, what you really need to run a CVC is somebody like you, somebody like uh, Stefan Longay, somebody like Bonnie Simi at JetBlue people who really understand the mothership so that you can deliver the capabilities and core competencies. You understand the strategic fit with that. That's, that is really the number one way that your a players bring a players. And if you are an a player inside of TDK, then, then the a players in Silicon Valley are going to recognize that because you can deliver the goods. If what happens, what people don't realize, and this happened over and over again, there was just tons of roadkill among CVCs in Silicon Valley. Because over and over again, what would happen is that they would, you know, uh, they would want to get into a hot deal. And then, you know, Benchmark or NEA or Excel or Foundation might say, yeah, you know what, you could be a really great strategic partner, but can you deliver your global supply chain expert to my 30-year-old CEO in the next 48 hours because he's facing some problems? If the answer wasn't yes, then guess what? They were going to write you off. And so that means that you are only going to see the dogs that they wanted to bring to you. So, you know, the re it's just so important for you to be perceived as an A player and serious about corporate venturing. So that's number, that's the first difference is that they're realizing that what's more important are the internal people they staff in the CVC than anybody from the outside, because you can partner with people on the outside. The second thing is is that they were so incredibly slow like there was no design they didn't know why they were doing it just every it was kind of fomo we're just going to jump into this um their investment committees were taking six weeks to turn around decisions and you know making their making the cvcs basically build the same kind of analysis you would for the core and legacy business they were operating operating like management review boards 
not like top tier venture capitalists. So now they're learning more about, hey, it's about portfolio. It's about option value, not net present value. It's about customer acquisition and revenue, not about, not about short-term profit. So they're using a different filter and a different lens in a smarter way for what might make a good investment. And I think they're, so I think they've, they've, they've really done a much better, they're doing a much better uh, job in that. And then I'd say the third thing that's, that where I think the CVCs are going to beat the venture capitalists is that the VCs now are, are tied to their limited partners or limited partners have gotten hooked on fast returns. Now, COVID may have shift, will shift us back potentially, but, you know, a lot of the VCs have not been able to, you know, and, and it's a little bit harkens to why Mark Andreessen wrote that, wrote his letter about it's time to build because he's basically saying, look, we need to make longer term investments. We need to invest in things that might take a little longer. But right now, I actually think the CVCs are, can own any of these longer term, these, these, um, these ventures that could be incredibly disruptive you know, many times mega mega unicorns, because they can be more patient capital. Um, they can they're used to investing in long term because of R and D. So I think the CVCs are going to actually fit. They're going to there's a tier. I actually had this conversation with Shell Ventures because you know if you look at some of the things they're doing, that that's going to take a long term time to kind of um, to to basically build that you know real technology and and real science around some of the stuff that 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 some of you guys are doing and and the vcs just frankly don't have the ability to invest most of the vcs don't have the ability to lot, invest over a longer period of time that i think cvcs and i think cvcs then are going to be able to fill a niche and make a ton of money that the vcs won't be able to go after i think also cvcs have an opportunity to influence the outcome they bring oh. a lot of values that could come from the mothership Yes, if you do what I said was the main difference, number one, where you have someone who knows the mothership. But so many times they hired somebody who was local to Silicon Valley who didn't know anyone at the mothership. And if you don't know anyone at the mothership, you can't pick up the phone and deliver that cap those core cap competencies, assets, capabilities. You're dead in the water with the, with the VCs. Very good. So I'm very happy to have an audience because they're checking on me. And you mentioned five criteria to work with a company. Yeah. Um, of course, a full-time team and a CEO candidate with mothership knowledge. And they say, what about the other three? So. Yeah. Well, I talked about those two because you because Kumi asked the question about talent. Yeah. The other three are, um, I only told you one of the altruistic reasons I, I, I did this as well, but uh, I'll come back to that. So the other three are access to funding. Uh, because when we build ventures with companies, listen, and it's the same thing for CVC. The, the issue is, is that like when we are building, doing venture building with a, with a company, we are not here to do a theoretical abstract exercise. We are 100% focused on, on execution. We're not doing exec ed. So in 12 weeks, you know, that venture has a daily standup, nightly sit down. They have a logo. They have a website. They are a real startup. So by the end of that 12 weeks, we have a very robust and rigorous business plan. And we have pilots ready to go. Like we just finished one with, with one of our large industrial clients, 24 customers saying, hey, at the end of just 12 weeks, if you guys continue on into pilots, I want to be a pilot. Okay. Um, and so that means you do not as a mothership, as a senior, the new venture board, uh, the, the kind of internal VCs do not have three months to go find that half a million dollars or whatever we need to go run those pilots. 
and so access to seed funding is very important. Same thing on the CVC side. You know, we teach the CVCs, look, for every dollar in initial investment, there's three dollars in you know, follow-on if you want to exercise your, your pro rata. So you've got to be thinking, working from the future backwards in terms of, of the funding. The fourth thing is an engaged new venture board. Um, and what we mean by that is those senior executives who join, who become the internal venture capitalists who will do four things. They will make the fund no fund decision. They can provide access to the customer's channels and markets that give you the competitive advantage over any well-funded startup. They can provide access to those core competencies, assets, and capabilities. And then ultimately they can remove the friction that can sometimes occur, like get that procurement person you know, we were working with a big pet food company and they were doing um, an integrated hardware software product, super cool, but they didn't have a pre-approved hardware prototyper on their procurement list. How long does that take? Uh, it needed to take two weeks, not 12 weeks, because we only have 12 weeks to do the whole thing. And so, um, so the new venture board is very, very critical. When we say engaged, we don't, they don't need to do a ton of time. But we do actually ask them to do, um, there are some things that we ask them to engage in. And then the fourth, the fifth thing is um, an early look, an early consideration of what you're going to do with those ventures. Are you going to spin them out? Because if you're going to spin them out to take, and most of our clients for the internal venture building they're doing don't want to spin them out because they want to be perceived as gross stocks, not value stocks. So they want to retain the value. But if they want to spin them out, there's a very, you know, you got to prepare them differently than you might if you're spinning them back in. Um, so there's spin out, there's spin into an existing business unit. Uh, and we say to people, listen, if you think about the spectrum of new venture creation from ideate to incubate to accelerate to scale, that we recommend if you're running an incubator that you keep those ventures with you in the incubator until the first phase through the first phase of accelerate when they're launched and in the market, we call that the build to validate uh, and and uh, build to learn and validate phase, and into the early build to automate and standardize. Because if you throw it back into a business unit, it will get crushed for sure or starved of oxygen. Um, so, and then the third um, option is a wholly owned subsidiary. So most of our clients actually uh, will end up doing a wholly owned subsidiary, but 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 based on the decisions you make at kind of what you think working from the future backwards you're going to do with your ventures on Accelerate, that will determine, hey, do I need to create that internal innovation ecosystem, those new venture advocates? You know, some, some, it'll, it'll inform some of the things you need to do for, on the mothership side uh, uh, to ensure that these ventures reach escape velocity. That's very nice. And I remember at the very beginning, you talk about you do incubators on a perpetual basis, and you talk about the spin-out and the spin-in, have you seen examples that work really well where it's a hybrid? Some are spin-in and some are spin-out. Yeah, yeah, we do. I mean, the spin-out typically, there's two main reasons people will spin them out. Number one is it's kind of a big infrastructure play or a big capital-intensive capital play, and they want to share the risk with other people's money, right? So that's, that's one reason is they want to share the risk. Could be other CVCs, could be VCs, could be family offices, could... Uh, and then in other cases, it's because they bring certain superpowers to the venture, but that venture requires additional superpowers to actually be successful and thrive. And so that's the other time that you might spin them out is when you're saying, hey, this might be an interesting joint venture partner or might be an ecosystem play and we want to bring these other people to the table. Um, and to do that, then those people obviously need to share in the upside and to share in the upside, you need to spin them out and have a separate and have a separate entity. 
Um, so yeah, we do see them occasionally. Um, we do see people who will either do both do a spin in or a spin out. Most of our clients don't like, um, most of our clients don't spin in to an existing business unit right away. Because if you remember business units are for two reasons, number one, often it might be in the middle of the budget year. And by the way, they didn't budget to basically launch a new venture. Same thing for CVCs. If you basically bring to one of your business units, Hey, I want you to do a pilot, but then you tell them they have to pay for the pilot. You know, a lot of times they'll be like, look, I can't do that. I don't have the budget for it. So you have to be creative about where the money is going to come from to basically to pay for that pilot. Um, and then the other thing around, um, the business units is that often their metrics, the KPIs of a, of a core and legacy business uh, are not the same metrics as, as what a CBC should have or what a new venture should have. And so it's very hard to basically, you know, the, the, the metrics that a business unit lives by, those KPIs are very different than what, what you want from um, a venture. You want a venture not making, you want them reinvesting, uh, not doing, not, not basically looking for short-term profit. Very nice. And I will double click on the spinning because I think you're saying this is what's most common. What would be the smart KPIs for um, creating the context for successful spinning? So every time we build a business and execution plan, we basically, um, so the way we look at, the way we look at, um, when we look at, when we look at kind of this incubate, incubating is accelerating, when you look at doing, um, uh, incubation across this idea, incubate, accelerate, and scale. When you build a venture, so when you're incubating a venture, we basically say, look, in that 12 weeks, you there's kind of there's three different things that are happening. First of all, you're going out and you're trying to find customer pain, right? If there's no pain, you should kill the venture. If you're a CVC and you ask the entrepreneurs what's the pain you're trying to solve and they can't answer, you should not invest. So the number one thing is, what is the pain they're trying to solve? Otherwise, you get a bunch of very smart engineers who don't like to talk to customers. And so they'll talk to two customers and they tell you, hey, we know that there's a market for this. So, so number one is, is there customer pain? And is there a lot of it? Because if there's not a lot of it, you can't move the needle, at least for a venture inside of a large company. Um, once you then understand there's enough pain, now you can start to say, okay, well, now what kind of product or solution can we imagine to solve that pain? Okay. And um, there's another test for you because guess what? If the, to solve the pain, the solution is time travel, well, we don't have time travel. And so we, that product is not feasible to build. Now, of course, you have three other options. You can buy, partner, or invest. But if none of those are feasible, then you have to put it on the shelf. You have to kill that venture at that point in time. And then the third thing is then when we understand we've got tons of pain, the product is feasible, now we're going to design the business. And then to your point, when we design the business, we are going through um, a very extensive look at um, uh, what the risks are, how we're going to mitigate those risks. And I'm going to actually show you a real um, page out of, so we basically have, we basically build an operating plan that is built around the small bets and experiments you're going to run, what, what risks you're trying to mitigate uh, in, 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 in different things, what the metrics and milestones that tell you you've mitigated that risk, and only then do you unlock that a next round of funding and the next round of funding. So both your operating plan and your use of funds should absolutely be built around 
your experiments and your risks. And, and every, frankly, when I do investing in startups, I basically, I ask them, okay, what are the risks? Uh, how are you going to mitigate those risks? What are the tests that you're doing? What are the metrics and milestones? And so the KPIs then, Nicola, become the KPIs related to the risks, either the market risk, the technical risk, or the financial risk, and, or you know, governance risk. When we move to accelerate, the, the thing that's really important for you to understand is when you go to um, the accelerate phase, um, not only is there kind of these three phases, but there's also uh, the other thing that's really important is to understand that in each of these, I'm going to show you one other slide that's important uh, on the accelerate side. Um, when you're talking about accelerate is that there's this slide in terms of, look, you got these three phases, but then within those three phases, you're actually testing more than just the product, right? We talk about there's five swim lanes when you're looking at a venture, there's product market fit and there's the, the building the product. There's looking for that, right? There's also then tests you're going to run around the go to market. Are they using inside sales? Are they using digital? Are they using, you know, field sales, what's the mechanism that you're going to use to go to market? The third is the business model. How are you going to make money? Uh, what are the sources of revenue? And you need to design tests on willingness to pay and how you're going to go after that revenue. The fourth swim lane is around operations. It may be great. You have so much pain. There is a totally feasible product to build, but guess what? It's so expensive to deliver that product that the unit economics don't, they don't work and they don't scale. And so you can't make any money. And as a large company, you've got to be able to move the needle for a multi-billion dollar company. And then the fifth swim lane is really about um, growing the team and making sure back to that talent conversation that you've got the right people in the right place and the right team. Very nice. And now if you look at KPIs for the, the audience who wants to do an incubator inside their own company, what would be their KPIs to make sure that what you've just described, the blueprint, is not just protected and nurtured, but actually does pop up quite a few successes? It won't be successful every time, but actually, like you said, failing early is okay. What's not okay is to go for a long time and then you end up with no market. So what would be the KPIs you would recommend for people who are in charge of the incubation? Yeah, so, so the number one thing so obviously, uh, I actually, there's a really, uh, the F Financial Times basically just created a new uh, innovation media platform that anybody who's doing a CVC or an incubator should be looking at. It's really quite good. It's called Sifted. And they actually just put out some very scary statistics on uh, incubator, on, on corporate accelerators. So the average um, venture capitalist, they, you know, the success rate of their ventures is about, about 11%. If a venture goes through like a Y Combinator or a Techstars or a 500 startups, that tends to be a higher success rate, maybe about 12%. Uh, corporate incubators and accelerators actually are only about 8% success rate. And part of the reason is because if you think at, uh, you know, look at 500 startups, you look at, at any of the, the, the classic incubators, they don't need as big of a hit rate as a large scale incubator inside a large company because they have limited partners. If they have two startups that do really well, that returns the fund, their limited partners are happy. Um, so they can, they can afford uh, a lower percentage success rate. No incubator can su survive that success rate. They certainly can't survive an 8% success rate. 
And the reason why most of them fail is threefold. Number one is they think that, guess what? Uh, they look at a, at, at a 500 and they say, hey, guess what? Um, you know, it's all about mentors and money. Well, that works for, for a lot of the classic uh, incubators, but that doesn't work for a large company. So they need methodology. They need a repeatable, scalable model. That, that's, that's, that, that's number one. Um, so, so that, and if you do that, then your hit rate will be higher. So the incubator, just like for us, we're only as good as the last venture we launched into the market. We have about a 90% success rate of ventures in the market, generating revenue, getting acquired, et cetera. And, um, but it's because we're super, super, um, anal about that. You know, if it's the will to kill, uh, so if there's no customer pain or there's no, the product isn't feasible or you can't make money. So number one is that the KPIs for the incubator need to be around, are you, are you, are you a screening your, your ventures, doing a good portfolio review of the ventures you're going to put in and choose to incubate in the first place? So that's the first place that you need good KPIs. Then it's, are you basically using a, a repeatable and scalable model so that you don't get garbage in, garbage out? And that each of the, on the back end, you're doing very, very robust and rigorous business and execution plans. And then your primary KPI is going to be around the success of your ventures in the market. And you should be, frankly, no less than a 50% success rate if you have been, if you have been disciplined about the, 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 the incubation process. Uh, and, and even into Accelerate, right? You may kill it then. But again, if you're you're, you're trying to remove the greatest amount of risk on the least amount of capital. So you should not be over investing in these ventures early on. So let me challenge a bit, Linda, if it's 90%, uh, is that not being playing it too safe? Uh, no, because you need to kill ventures, right? You need to kill ventures. So we don't want to have a hundred percent success rate. I don't think it's possible. Um, if you look at the history of Silicon Valley, so 90% is, so for us, the thing is, is that, that what's really important about that 90% is that's not 90% coming out of incubate. We don't count it when it finishes its business and execution plan. We only count it if it's basically already a launched venture that's funded, that's actually got pilots and customers demonstrating a willingness to pay or it gets so, so that's not, that's not too safe there considering that everybody else is, is 8% or 10% or 12%. <laughs> But, but I think, you know, if ours is 90%, I think 50% is realistic. I, I would say they should do 90%. But I think for a startup incubator, um, I think that's, you know, it's beating the odds, Silicon Valley odds by a lot. Um, and I think the mothership plays such a big role that if the mothership isn't disciplined and doesn't get, you know, doesn't lean in and it doesn't basically figure out how to help these things reach escape velocity then they're, um, then it's going to be hard for that incubator to achieve that kind of results uh, without that. So there's, there's a little bit of a hedging of bets on, on my part for the benefit of the incubator because their mothership has to basically behave. Very right. nice. I have a question from uh, the audience, uh, Bruno. And um, because you see so many CVCs, I think you're a really good person to, uh, to answer this question. Should the CVC be part of the corporation, a department, or should it be set up as a separate entity, uh, arm's length? Okay, so I have, uh, so it should be separate as a separate entity in the sense, so TDK is a perfect example of how, 
and you could maybe you, you can share exactly how you're set up. But so so it's it can't. Here's what it can't be. We are not believers in com- especially at the beginning. Now you can evolve to this, but at the very beginning, the whole value you bring to the network and the ecosystem that you want to be considered an A player in is the mothership. It's the assets, core competencies, capabilities, channels, customers. What we see is that too many people too fast try to basically really separate themselves and just become a financial engine as opposed to a strategically relevant uh, reason for the mothership. Once you, if you basically completely disassociate yourself with your mothership, why then you're now competing with Benchmark, with Foundation, with Kleiner Perkins, with Sequoia. And like, I love you all, but like, it's very hard to do that when they've been doing it for 50 years. Okay. Like all those people who founded those, those companies were friends of my parents. All right. So they've been in business doing this a very long time. It's by the way, very few other places in the world have been able to create, recreate Silicon Valley for this reason. Right. So I think um, there are a lot of people who want to be completely separate from their mothership, but they have to value the mothership and what the mothership brings as long as the mothership does bring it. If it doesn't bring it, then they're useless to you and you might as well go do your own thing. But, but, but I think you can evolve to becoming a completely separate um, um, entity, but the value that you, I actually think that there is less risk to you staying, uh, becoming tethered to the mothership, being a speedboat for the mothership than being completely severed from the mothership because then you're just another venture capital firm and, and, you know, there's not that many super successful, you know, there's not that many really, really high power. You got to go out and raise money. You got to go out and do all this other stuff from the outside. So there are a few that have been very successful in doing that, but there haven't been too many. So I, I just, it's a cautionary tale, but I do think having your own being very lean and very agile is very important. Like you need three people on your investment committee not 10 people on your investment committee. Uh, uh, so I think that's, a, you know, it's very important for you to be able to work and operate on your own. I, and, uh, I, I, can't you agree more. I can't agree more. I, at some point when I proposed to create the corporate VC, someone asked me what the name should be. And that was never a question for me that it should be TDK Ventures. And, and the point is, it's about positioning. It's about value you're going to add. And I'm going to be judged on our ability to actually deliver on the promise of the brand and the mothership value and all of that. So I have Ara who has a question, which is a double click on what you just said. So I think that's really a good question. Any recommendation for how a large, highly decentralized organization should provide access to those core assets, capabilities, if the business units are more focused on their internal affairs and not available to support startups? Yeah, really good point. So, um, so there's, there's two, two things in your question. So number one is, um, AT&T Foundry actually was one of the, um, most well-respected AT&T never invested a dime in a company. All they focused on was strategic partnering and they did it very, very well. And the reason they did it well is because what they did is they had a group that was dedicated. So this could be a strategic partnering group or it could be your CVC where somebody in the CVC is the liaison to the mothership and is the one is the person who basically is responsible for making sure that those startups have a good experience with the mothership. That's very, very, very important. And so, um, so typically what we will create is an internal ecosystem of, of either CVC ambassadors 
who, by the way, will share in, in, you know, maybe they get, they get a bonus of some sort if your ventures do well, but find a way to compensate them or recognize them in some way. But we build an internal ecosystem, again, of, of these ambassadors in these various places. And it's both in the business units, but it's also in the functions, right? So as I was saying before, who's the one person in legal who's going to write the one-page term sheet, not the 40-page term sheet? Who's the person in marketing who's not going to be the brand police? Who's the person in, in HR who, can, who knows what a growth hacker is? And so it's very important to build that internal ecosystem. When we design, um, when we, we have a blueprint for designing CVCs, just like we have a blueprint for designing incubators, and when we walk literally page by page with that blueprint, we make, Nicola knows how painful this is, we make you make a decision by design, not by default. So we make you ask the question, we make you, we make you ask the, and one of those things is, how are we going to deliver the capability? And, and it's why it's so important to be you know, part of this, the, the senior executive team when you're in, a, you know, in the CVC, so that you can deliver that, that capability. But, but the way to do it, if you're a highly disaggregated, organization is to create this internal network, this kind of, you know, telecommunications and, you know, network looking map of people who, and often they will volunteer because what you will find is there are lots of internal entrepreneurial people who want to basically take part. They want to be connected. They want to learn, they want to grow. So often you do not have a problem um, finding those internal advocates. Uh, You do need to basically uh, create uh, make them a cohort. You need to kind of train them. You need to engage them so that it's not just like, you know, so maybe you're doing a quarterly webinar with them where you're getting them together and you're basically sharing insights. It's also the why a CVC, we talk about the gives and the gets between the mothership, but the CVC can provide inspiration and programming to the mothership. They can basically say, hey, here's what we're learning. Here are the insights. This is, we interviewed a customer. All those things, when you are seen to be giving back to the mothership as well as taking from the mothership, just puts you in a, in a, in a better sense. Um, the other thing is you can also use your CVC or your incubator as a way to rotate. Your, your, your chief human resources officers tend to love these because they're a way for you going back to the talent question to recruit and retain because you can do a, a rotation a rotation through. And when you take people from the business units and you put them in the CVC for three months, guess what? That person then goes back to the business unit as your advocate. So it's funny you say that because this afternoon I'm having a, a meeting with human resources to talk about a fellowship program yeah. where okay. they come for six months and we do rotations. Uh, that that only serves you that, that serves the mothership, but it certainly serves the CVC because now you have these advocates all over the organization. Yeah. So I have two more questions if you have time. Oh, I'm good. So I have one more question from uh, Kumi, uh, which I think is a really good one. Uh, Devil's Advocate, why would a corporate like TDK create a CVC rather than equity stakes in relevant businesses? Broadcom never had a CVC, while Intel and Qualcomm have. And if I talk about TDK, uh, before we started TDK Ventures, they had made in the previous three years 10 minority equity investments. So clearly, you can do some of that without a corporate VC. So here's a Devil's Advocate question from Kumi is, why do we need a CVC? At what point does it make sense to have one? Yeah, you don't need a CVC necessarily if you're if you are uh, an agile organization. Um, so 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 let me give you two examples. So That's in some, a cheeky answer already. <laughs> so in some cases, a CVC. 
so, so the so the issue of the CVC is um, in some cases the CVC may be investing in something that is very different from what the core is going to invest in. So, for instance, if you take Shell, Shell Ventures exists, but Shell Ventures focuses in investing in upstream technologies and things like that. But yet, each of the divisions has you know can invest off their balance sheet in things that are relevant to that particular business unit. They don't need a CVC to do that. They can just invest off their balance sheet. But anytime you're trying to use, you know, you want to use your funding as a way. So Qualcomm Ventures, they use their VC arm as a way to basically invest in future technologies that had not kind of crossed the chasm into the mass market yet. And they were investing like in autonomous vehicles or in augmented reality or gaming. They were investing early in industries that, they wanted to be able to get an early look at so that they can inform their R&D group what chipsets they might need to be ready with when those markets did go mass market. And so typically when you, you form the CVC to not necessarily be focused on what the core and legacy businesses are operating on, you can invest there. But typically the CVC is really looking to be kind of that sensor network, that early um, look or a way to basically see, hey, you know what, we're working on this sensor technology. I wonder if it'll work in in regenerative medicine. I wonder if it'll work here. So, so it, it's really a way to help you um, potentially pivot the core and legacy businesses to something new uh, 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 in that sense. So I think that's really one of the reasons why you um, would do a CVC is that they're they're free enough from the core and the legacy business to basically go after all uh, to go after new stuff. Yeah. And if I can give an example of TDK, even though we have a corporate VCs, we still have our MA group and business groups who actually make minority equity investments in startups. So we are not the only one to be able to do that. So my last question is really a, more for inspiring the audience. Uh, do you have any tip about, you talk about the art of the impossible. How do you, uh, what tip would you recommend on how to master this art of the impossible? Mm-hmm. The art of the, the art. Of the, uh, so I think it's, again, again, this is where I think having a, building a world-class CVC is how you, is how you master it because it allows you to put your toe in a lot of, a lot of ponds and to test that and to see if it really fits with the mothership. So, you know, again, it goes back to how do you play small bets? How do you do pilots? How do you do investments? And I think it's just a really, you know, so, so mastering, you've got to, the, the biggest thing for motherships is that they are not current on the art of the possible. They are not, they do not know what current trends and technology are out there. They literally do not. Look, Uber doesn't exist if we don't have mobile phones, real-time payments, GPS, etc. And so you've just, and it, the world is moving too fast. Uh, and if you're focused on your core and legacy businesses and the different business units, you're just not going to, you're, you're just not going to be fast enough to go out to test something, pivot it, pilot it, try it. And you just got to get really good and get that flywheel going. Um, and I think you can do it in the form of an incubator. You can do it in the form of a CVC. But, but those are places where you can place small bets. You can test. You can learn. But, but be sure if you're going to test and learn that you have a mechanism that you can then capture that learning, curate it, and disseminate it back into yep. the market. Thank you, Linda. It was really nice, inspiring, and uh, amazing answer. Thank you so much. Always fun. Always fun. All right, everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye.
Global Venturing Review was produced by In-Ear Production. You can find out more by going to inearproduction.com.